Hi, this is Arnie Arneson. Welcome to Race Class with Boston University Law Professor Jonathan Feingold, our year-long look at critical race theory. Normally, once a month, we teach a class with Professor Jonathan Feingold of Boston University called Race Class. My answer to the attacks on critical race theory was, don't get mad, get even, teach it. But this summer, rather than going once a month. So Jonathan, you have invited a guest to our program again, which is just so exciting because not that you're not phenomenal, but uh, it's always wonderful to have other voices as well. And you actually uh, got another fabulous get. Jerry Kang is Distinguished Professor of Law and Asian American Studies and was the inaugural Korea Times Hancock Ebo Endowed Chair, I probably said that wrong, for law and Korean American studies. He graduated magna cum laude from both Harvard College and Harvard Law School. Well, he's not too smart. Where he was supervising <laughs> editor of the Harvard Law Review. After clerking for the Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals, he started his prof professorship at UCLA in 1995. He is a leading scholar on implicit bias and critical race studies. Professor Kang collaborates broadly across disciplines and industries on scholarly, educational, and advocacy advocacy projects, an inspiring teacher, which is why Jonathan invited you, I'm sure. He has received <laughs> UCLA's highest recognition, the Ebby Art of Teaching Distinguished Teaching Award in 2020. I will go on and on and on, but we have so much to cover, I'm afraid to do that. So let me welcome Jerry to the program. Thank you so much for doing this. I'm delighted to be here. All right. So now that I've sort of reminded everyone why we're here, Let's sort of remind everyone again, Jonathan, what we've been doing this summer with affirmative action, because we have been sort of sort of cutting up into small, sort of more understandable pieces. And in an interesting way, we kind of backed into the conversation. We didn't start at the beginning, we started at the end. So can you remind my audience a little bit about where we are now and where we're going with this interview with Jerry Kang? Thanks, Arnie. It's always such a pleasure to be here, uh, even more so today uh, since Jerry is joining us. And I will offer a little bit of background for anyone who is just tuning in for the first time or who may be um, listening uh, more regularly with us. So as you may know, there is currently a lawsuit or two lawsuits that were consolidated and recently deconsolidated that are at their core challenging a university's ability cons to consider any applicant's race in the admissions process. And so that sort of boils down to a lawsuit that's trying to eliminate a particular form of affirmative action in university admissions. And our question, given that this is race classes, well, we really want to know how race matters without affirmative action. And so if all university admissions policies went quote unquote colorblind, that doesn't mean race stops to matter. And so part of our goal here is to surface and unpack all the various ways that race still matters, even if we're not consciously seeing it and trying to account for it. And we've broken that down longitudinally by asking how race matters before admissions, during admissions, and after admissions. So each month we have two episodes. One, Arnie and I break it down. And then the second episode, we bring in a guest to help us dive deeper into the concepts that we were messing around with in the prior episode. 
last month we were talking about how uh, for, uh, race matters after admissions. We brought in Dr. Evelyn Carter, who talked to us about how the environment of a university, including the racial demographics, actually matter and can shape a student's experience there. This month, our focus is on how does race matter during admissions? Last episode, we talked about how even with Harvard's existing affirmative action policy, white students enjoy substantial racial advantages in the admissions process that have no relation to anything that we, we might think of as you know academic merit. And the big issue that we took up then was Harvard's legacy plus preferences, which go to the students who enjoy the most inherited race and class advantage. And our parting question was, if you remove all those legacy plus preferences, does that mean Harvard then has some racially neutral admissions policy? The answer is no, in part because there are racial advantages for white applicants that are scattered across facially neutral components of a standard you know, colorblind admissions process. We invited Jerry to come in to help us break that down. Uh, and so with that, I'm just gonna start by asking Jerry to share a little bit about a paper that he wrote in 2006, so soon to be a 20 year old um, paper, <laughs> which makes it a seminal paper. And in that paper, he and Majran Banaji, who is one of the co-founders or the co-creators of the implicit association test, they made the argument that affirmative action actually provides a more quote unquote fair measure of applicant merit. And so Jerry, I would just love for you to help explain the thrust of that insight and how that might help us think about affirmative action today. Thanks for that great question. Hey, so like in terms of style, my goal is always to try to actually uh, persuade people who are persuadable. I, I wanna find new common ground. That means I often have to meet people where they are. And I use essentially a fact-based, evidence-based game to try to tell people, hey, there's some new stuff that we've learned and we should probably think about what that means about how to lead a decent life and build a decent country. So in that paper, we try to make the following argument. This is not the metaphor I used in the paper, but I just wanna start with a bizarre hypothetical. Suppose we admitted people into universities simply based on height. We just thought height was merit. We just wanted tall people by definition. Kind of weird. People would push back like, why height? Seems kind of weird. But people said, no, no, no. A lot of Norwegians. Yes, yes. It turns <laughs> out it's in their favor. <laughs> not, not necessarily in mine. But the point <laughs> is, people would just suppose we had centuries of admitting people into the most elite universities simply based on height. And people just didn't want to budge. And anytime anyone pushed back on it, they said, look, come on. We don't want to sacrifice merit. We don't want to sacrifice height. All right. Fine. Suppose you can't fight that. Well, what if I said, well, like, how are we measuring height anyway? And suppose you also find out the way we measured height historically is that you'd eyeball someone from 20 feet away and then be asked like seven days later, how tall was she? In addition, the room at which people were standing had like a weird cold draft uh, on one side of the room where people would kind of shudder and kind of shrink because it was cold. Other places in the room, plenty warm. If that's how we were measuring height, again, from 20 feet away, remembering seven days ago with a room that was cold in some places and warm in others, leading people to shrink or actually stand tall, it would be just a weird way to measure height. And someone would say, look, even if we just want to measure height, can we just do it a little bit more accurately? And that's basically the move that we make. We're saying 
because of implicit bias, if we're just eyeballing height, we're not even measuring height correctly because we tend to see what we expect to see. And if we see, again, Asian folks, we might remember them and see them as being shorter than they actually are, because on average, that's what we expect to see. And if the room is differentially hot and cold, in part because of this thing called stereotype threat that your, again, last speaker, uh, Evelyn Carter, explained, that the room is designed in such a way that has a differential impact on some people. So we might as well at least make the room equally warm for everyone so everyone could actually stand up and flourish. That's why we said that if we take measures, to, again, measure people more accurately and make the room, again, even temperature for all, that's what we meant by adopting fair measures. And those fair measures often have to take race and gender and other kinds of things into account. And by pivoting our understanding of affirmative action into potentially just getting our measures right, even if the measures are not the most important thing, we wanted to create new common ground. And we elaborated a case why even if we just cared about height, we're doing a pretty bad job at measuring height and a pretty unfair job at making sure that everyone can stand up tall and straight evenly. And so if we could do better on that, at least we can get more common ground on the thing that apparently a lot of people really care about, height. I have to ask a question because you talked about these fair measures. And so now you're going to look at more than one measure. But isn't there a bias in the measures you choose to look at? I mean, yes. how do we know? I mean, what is a fair measure? Well, a fair measure to Jerry may be very different than a fair measure to Donald, for example. So I guess part of the question is, is that how do you not only defend this idea of these measures, but how do you describe what is fair so that you do get buy-in from people that are persuadable? Absolutely. And again, people are going to be a little bit motivated. If their kid is really fast, they're going to say, we're going to use uh, speed, not height. If their kid is really good at solving math problems, let's use math problems. I mean, obviously, we're all motivated. We're all human beings. Totally get it. So terrific question. Uh, here's a couple ways to think about it. One is, well, let's just agree publicly what our definitions of merit are, whether it's height, speed, ability to take fast math tests, ability to give a good oratory. Let's just publicly publish what we think to be merit. Second, let's also disclose how we're actually measuring it. Because if we're just eyeballing it, if we're just calling it as we see it, if we're just following our gut, there's decades of social psychological evidence that suggests that biases, sometimes known to us, sometimes unknown to us, which is an implicit bias, can actually warp our measures of people in surprising ways. So one way to check against that is not necessarily picking different attributes, height, speed, ability to take math tests, but to, for example, use rubrics or use checklists to actually measure people. The bottom line of a lot of the implicit bias work is it if you trust your gut, in part because you're sure that you're smart, you know smarts when you see it, uh, you know talent when you see it, and you never have to double check because you're so darn good, you tend to break consistently with your biases. So if you put some guidelines, you know, basically some guardrails, paint the lanes a little bit more clearly and follow a standard process, we tend to be a little bit more fair and less likely, are less likely to have biases kind of lead us astray. So it's really a question about whether we can improve the procedures, at least slightly, so that we actually give people a fair shot. And then the different conversation about stereotype threat is to recognize one of the reasons why sometimes the room feels really cold is if there's no one who looks like us around teaching fellow students. And that's why actually a critical mass, and it doesn't have to be a one-to-one -one 
proportional representation for uh, from American demographics. I mean, if there's essentially no one who looks like you in the room, it's going to have an impact. It happens to all people, straight white men, it, ha it happens to, right? So the question then becomes, can you actually design an environment where there's enough of a critical mass such that you can rise and fall according to your individual merits and not necessarily as a function of, say, negative rap about your people? So I know we've covered a lot of different ideas, but that's the basic pitch. But the here, Ar Arnie, Arnie oh, let, me, oh, let me jump in, in quickly, because I think it's so it's, there's this move where it's like, okay, well, first, let's have a conversation about what is or isn't merit. In last episode, Arnie and I were talking about legacy preferences. I don't think anyone considers that merit. I mean, it's something that we know has a, like a huge impact. Just to remind anyone who wasn't with us, according to the expert hired by the party suing Harvard, according to them, 75% of the of 43% of Harvard's uh, white uh, admits are legacy plus students, 43%. It's like 2,200 students. And according to the expert hired by the people suing Harvard, 75% of them, so I'm, it's like 1,500 students walking around Harvard's campus would not have gotten in, but for their legacy plus status. That's more than all of the black and Latinx students that Harvard admitted. Like it's more than all of them. And so, but so legacy plus, that's a consideration that no one thinks of as merit in any sort of way. But then there's a lot of other parts of the process. And so there's guidance counselor, like letter, letters of recommendation, alumni interviews, some personal rating, which is just a subjective assessment. So there's those which are sort of subjective assessments. And then there's also standardized test scores. And so Jerry, be really helpful for me if you could just sort of connect the conversation we've been having to those more concrete parts of the process. And so like, well, assume that we say, you know what, a guidance counselor recommendation, that is merit, that's reasonable. Is there a concern that we might not be measuring everyone in the right way? Or standardized tests, the SAT, you know, it's not a perfect measure, but it has to be measuring something. So is it unreliable in ways that are actually going to produce some sort of racial harm that we're not, you know, generally thinking about? Yeah, uh, great questions. Uh, so let's get a little bit more concrete. And, and it's not like we ever have perfect measures of anything. I get it. But let's talk about the two different clumps. Some of what we're measuring includes, you know, subjective judgments. Hey, does the person have a good personality? Does the person, will the person be a leader? Or has the person have the emotional intelligence, the EQ to actually be a successful student and contribute in different kinds of ways? Those are highly subjective, and those are actually usually determined by people who might look a little bit different than, again, black and brown folks who are not well represented within a particular institution. So how is it that these subjective measures of charisma, of leadership, all those things, whether it's actually within an interview done by an alum or whether it's done by an interview in an alum or whether it's done by a guidance counselor or teacher, how might that be infected by implicit bias? Well, look, again, implicit bias, just by definition, is junk in your head that you don't know that you have. It could be an attitude, which is like warmth, like or dislike, approach or avoid, do you want to have a beer with me, that kind of feeling. Or it could be a stereotype. Oh, this person tends to be a little bit quiet. This person tends to be really good at math, but really bad at English. That's a generalization. But we tend to have junk in our head that we don't really know that we have. And there's really good evidence that it guides how we interact with people, at least on the margins. So if you're a high school you know, counselor, you got 30 kids you have to deal with, right? And how much time are you going to deal with each of them? You might have 300 kids to deal with. 
Whom are you going to deal with? Whom are you going to make connections with? There's great evidence that says implicit biases, including attitudes, could alter just whether you see someone smiling or not. And if a student smiles to you and seems agreeable, you're going to want to help her a little bit. It might be that she reminds you of your own child who's going through the college process and you feel an immediate kinship or connection. Or if someone, again, is viewed as someone who can stand up and give a good talk, maybe they become the leader. So all these subjective things that we actually make sort of measurements on are inflected just a little bit by implicit bias. And it's passed through these letters of recommendation because we're all human beings and we just call it as we see it. It happens in alumni interviews. And unless we take precautions in advance, our good intentions are not gonna be good enough. So bottom line is these subjective measures, again, can be tilted by implicit biases. And so even though we think we're measuring accurately, we're gonna tilt in favor of the people who are kind of like us and people who have higher status. And that tends to include, again, a lot of white folks on a racial conversation. Final thing I wanna say is that the other bucket of things, which seem quite objective, because if and when you hear that, and I know a lot of Asian folks who think this, if you say, well, the subjective stuff is nonsense, it's bias, well, let's just go straight on test scores. Let's just take the SAT, take the ACT, give me any test that's objective, and I'll just fill in the bubbles and then take the top people. Seems a reasonable response. It seems much more objective, and, and in some ways, it might be, but, but, but. As you discussed in your last class, there's these weird phenomena uh, called stereotype threat that says that when there is a negative stereotype about your group in the performance domain, it can actually interfere with performance because of the anxiety that if we do poorly, that will confirm the negative stereotype about our, our people. And it actually happens to everyone to like, again, it could happen to Stanford white male engineering students if they're actually put under threat because they have to take a hard math test against, I don't know, essentially uh, Asians. Uh, and the question is, are Asians better than you at all forms of math or just this form of math? And then suddenly people are extremely talented in math. They actually depress their performance in weird ways. The bottom line is that the environment matters even on taking something as objective as a standardized test. And some meta-analyses, -anal like calculations of lots of studies, suggest that it could explain up to maybe 62 points on an SAT score. I know that that doesn't explain everything that that constitutes the gaps that exist amongst various social categories, but even objective tests, right, because of the environment around which we take these tests, can actually be subject to race. Race continues to matter, even if it's an objective test. So it's just a hard challenge for us to grapple. But no one should think that simply by getting rid of affirmative action, we've gotten rid of these implicit sort of winds and headwinds and, and forces that actually tilt us and push us, nudge us in one direction or another. Our challenge is to see all of it, which is quite invisible, and then to actually reckon with it. Do you need and, affirmative action? I mean, the reason I'm saying that is yeah. since what you just described to me is so nuanced and so interesting. And what I keep thinking is, so knowing all those implicit biases and knowing all that checklist, you don't have to use race because race, all, there's so many codes for race that aren't race. All right. For example, the legacy, as you were talking about, Jonathan, I have a funny feeling that most of the legacy students are probably white. Okay. I don't well, even we, ask that question. We know that. that. <laughs> we know that. Exactly. Ver verified, Arnie. Yeah, I'm sure it is. So, so I guess the question is, 
are we afraid of losing affirmative action because there won't be a, a, a pressure to make sure that there's a diversity within your school that really enriches the environment? Or are there ways for schools like a Harvard or Yale to still create that diverse landscape despite affirmative action not being one of the requirements because of all that, all that, that checklist yeah. you were just describing? I think there's two answers to that. One, we can get some of the way there. But two, it would be actually much more efficient to directly consider race instead of indirectly consider it using proxies. Uh, so unless there's a problem with it, why would we do it? And the third part is, I think, this idea of critical mass, uh, in part because we don't actually start this game at time zero. We start right now after hundreds of years of a certain kind of sedimentation of advantage so that even if we focus on class, class is racially inflected. Even if we think about status, again, status is racially infected. Even if we think about, again, the ability to navigate a certain kind of culture so that we seem like an insider, that is racially infl inflected. That's centuries. And we can't just now turn it all off and assume everything will correct in real time. That's just not how, again, structural forces in history actually operate. Therefore, yes, we can get some of the way, but I guess I want to be modest and say that, again, having better rubrics, designing more, quote, neutral systems, even though they can improve the system, actually need to take conscious sort of account of race sometimes. Like, think about the critical mass challenge, I guess, the last thing I'll say. If it's true that there's no one who looks like me around teaching law, right? And again, back in 1995, there were not many law professors who looked like me. Then maybe if I don't make it as a law faculty member, I think, well, look, it's not kind of what I should be doing. I don't succeed. There are no role models like me. I'm under greater threat and I might actually take the wrong lessons from some initial failure. But if everyone looks like me, if I can't be a math professor because I do badly in math, I'm not going to say, oh, the system is really rigged against me. There's no way Asian men can succeed in math because I just know there are counterexamples all around me. It's about me. I got to study a little bit more. And that is something that is very specifically race conscious. And it's something that we ought to take into account, at least to build a critical mass. So I'm going to ask a very similar question, but a slightly different way in part, because I think, Arnie, you're right, that it's been a nuanced conversation, but actually some very like just clear takeaways. And the first just comment that I want to make is there's a lot of ways in which one can justify taking race into account. We have been like the paper that Jerry sort of wrote almost 20 years ago now was again, just accepting, okay, so assume that we care about this thing called merit. A lot of folks are going to say, well, we shouldn't care about this thing called merit, but if we do, then at least let's be meritocratic in admissions. And so in a brief that Jerry was a part of that was written on behalf of leading stereotype threat researchers in the Fisher litigation, that brief says up front that by considering applicant race, admissions processes are quote unquote, not a departure from merit-based admissions. And now that sort of I'm ellipses -ing over to, but rather a quote unquote, more accurate merit-based admissions. And so just in a minute, Jerry, sort of reinforce for us, why is it that taking race into account that affirmative action actually ups meritocracy as opposed to contravening it, which is what you know everyone out there seems to think? So I'm gonna just go back to that silly height example. Suppose one part of the room is really cold and so you shudder and you kind of shrink a little bit. And so 
in a cold room. And if the measure only measures your height because you happen to be in a cold room, you're going to be read as shorter than you in fact are. If at the university you can create a space that allows everyone to flourish because the temperature is well modulated for everyone, then people can actually stand up to their true height, their true capacities. And what we want to do is if even if all you're doing is obsessed with height, which is again bizarre, but suppose we agree with that. We're not fighting that right now. The fact that we could actually let people actually stand up, create an environment where they don't have to shudder in the cold, where they can actually stand up to their true selves, then we're actually measuring their height more accurately. That's the idea of what it means to lift a stereotype threat, to create an environment that allows everyone to flourish and be as great as they can be. There are ways to get there a little bit more. And in order to get there, we have to be mindful of the team that we're actually building within the university, the portfolio of students. That's where race matters. So even if we care only about, again, merit, there are better ways to allow people to express their merit in ways that require us to be race conscious. And I'm going to say to Jonathan, if you don't bring him back, you're going to get a knuckle sandwich from me because I've learned so much from Jerry just in the last 20 minutes. I can't even stand it. Jerry Kang is a distinguished professor of law and Asian American studies at UCLA. The one thing I did not mention is that in 2021, he was nominated by President Joe Biden to serve on the National Council on the Humanities. Smart pick. And I can tell that you stand up tall at UCLA. Uh, that's the good news. Jonathan Feigold is a professor of law at Boston University. This is one example of race class. We're spending the summer doing affirmative action. I wish everybody could listen to these classes. We could change a world if they could actually feel informed. Thank you, gentlemen, so much for doing this. I truly appreciate it. And on that note, it is race class with Professor Jonathan Feingold of Boston University. This is our summer series on affirmative action. All right, everyone, we will schmooze tomorrow. Ciao. All you folks that you own my life. Never made a sacrifice Demons there on my trail Standing at the crossroads of a hill I look to the left, I look to the right Hands that grab me on the every side I got my price Which I'll sell if that is mine Think money rules and all else fails Go sell your soul, keep your shell I'm trying to protect what I keep inside All the reasons why I live my life Try to tell you what you want, try to tell you what you need